Leslie Fair. I'm a senior attorney with the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection, and you're listening to IP Friday's podcast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Friday's. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 117 of the IP Fridays podcast. I'm Ken Suzanne, co-host of the IP Fridays podcast, along with Rolf Clayson. If this is your first time listening to the IP Fridays podcast, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, thank you for coming back. If you enjoy our podcast, please help to spread the word on social media and through word of mouth. Our guest today is Leslie Fair. Leslie is Senior Attorney with the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection. Before we get to today's interview, let's focus on a recent development from the Federal Communications Commission and its Emergency Broadband Benefit Program. In an effort to expand high-speed Internet access to low-income residences across the United States, the Federal Communications Commission has announced the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, a $3.2 billion federal initiative that provides eligible households with discounts up to $50 per month for broadband service, $75 per month for households on tribal lands, and a one-time discount of up to $100 on a computer or tablet for eligible households. Program eligibility includes low-income households who already participate in low-income or pandemic relief programs established by broadband providers, lifeline subscribers, including those on Medicaid or those that accept SNAP benefits, households with children who receive reduced price or free school breakfasts or lunches, Pell Grant recipients, and those who have lost their jobs and seen their income reduced in the last year. The FCC's acting chairwoman, Jessica Rosenworcel, stated that, quote, this program will help those at risk of digital disconnection. It will help those sitting in cars and parking lots just to catch a Wi-Fi signal to go online for work. It will help those lingering outside the library with a laptop just to get a wireless signal for remote learning. It will help those who worry about choosing between paying a broadband bill and paying rent or buying groceries. In short, this program can make a meaningful difference in the lives of people across the country. Close quote. Now on to today's interview with Leslie Fair. Our guest today on the IP Fridays podcast is Leslie Fair. Leslie Fair is a senior attorney with the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection. After litigating false advertising cases for more than 20 years, she now specializes in industry outreach. She is the primary author of the FTC's business blog, which the ABA Journal named to its best law blog list. She has received the Robert Pitofsky Lifetime Achievement Award, among the highest honors for a career FTC staff member. Leslie serves as a vice chair in the American Bar Association's Antitrust Law Section. 
on the faculty of the Catholic University School of Law since 1984. She holds the title of Distinguished Lecturer. She also teaches consumer protection law at the George Washington University Law School. Leslie Clerk for the United States District Judge Fred Shannon in San Antonio, Texas, and served as staff counsel to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. She is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and the University of Texas School of Law. Welcome, Leslie, to IP Fridays. Thank you, Ken. It's a delight to be speaking with you. Leslie, uh, can you tell our listeners about the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection? What is its mission, and what are the typical matters that it handles on a day-to-day basis? I think most IP professionals are familiar with the other half of the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the Bureau of Competition, which, which deals with antitrust issues, obviously. We like to think of FTC standing for both, for thriving competition, as well as for the consumer. So the consumer protection side of the FTC, um, we deal with uh, challenging unfair deceptive trade practices in the marketplace, certainly scams and frauds, but also illegal business practices by Fortune 500s and other large corporations. Mm-hmm. And you've been with the FTC for, for 20 years, um, for more than 20 years. Uh, how has the FTC changed during that time period? Uh, I started, Ken, in uh, 1987, wow. which was before the dawn of Internet history. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I thought the job was tough and challenging back then, when all we had to deal with was television advertising, radio advertising, uh, direct mail, things along those lines. And, of course, the world changed um, when um, with the digital revolution, The interesting thing is the size of the FTC staff has not changed. Mm -hmm. So we are virtually the same size as we were when I started in 1987. However, as a cop on the beat, if you will, in the marketplace, uh, you know, we have the same number of staff. But the biggest change, of course, has been what the FTC has done um, and, and continues to do when it comes to the digital marketplace. And I think that's been... Uh, a major change, obviously, for your clients and and a huge change for what the FTC does. Is there a certain type of issue that you're seeing more of today than you didn't see a number of years ago? Well, you know, for the most part, issues of data security and consumer privacy were not as upfront as they are now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a division of privacy and identity protection that was founded about 20 years ago. Now, that's not to say the FTC hasn't always had an interest in data security and consumer privacy. I would go back to a statute we've been enforcing for 50 years, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which does have very specific consumer privacy and data security provisions. Um, but I think the, um, you know, what I wouldn't have predicted when I started at the FTC in 1987 is the extent to which questions about data security, consumer privacy, and the ongoing big data debate, however you want to um, define that phrase, yes. uh, I don't think anybody could have predicted that direction. But that is that makes up uh, for a lot of what the FTC does these days. Uh, not the only thing, but certainly data security and privacy are uh, huge parts of our mission um, to both, you know, on the antitrust side to encourage competition in the marketplace and also on the consumer protection side. 
uh, to make sure that the flow of commercial information, uh, you know, that it flows both, uh, you know, cleanly and freely, which I think is how the Supreme Court has worded it over the years. Yes, and let's move on to the word scams, which I'm sure takes up a lot of what you do. Particularly here now with COVID-19, I understand that there are a lot of scams happening. What are some of these scams that you're seeing? What can businesses and consumers do to protect themselves? I think that, um, you know, this time uh, last year when we were preparing our planning and our budget, uh, your clients, of course, weren't expecting the massive change to their business. And we had really, you know, no way to predict that, too. But, but our mission in so many ways on the consumer protection side um, has really shifted in focus. Certainly, we're still bringing, um, and in the same uh, record numbers, the kinds of cases we've always brought. But um, the prevalence of COVID scams has taken over a big chunk of what we do. Um, so far, the FTC has sent th- more than 350 warning letters to companies. Wow. Um, and these, uh, you know, we, now some folks have said, why not file 350 lawsuits? Um, uh, you know, that's because we're spending taxpayer money. Yes. Uh, 350 lawsuits are difficult to do. And I think we've had real success with this warning letter system. Basically, what we've done is, um, you know, we have uh, all of us on staff, uh, you know, kind of uh, looking for the kinds of um, questionable practices that we're seeing. These might be um, cures, preventions for COVID, uh, treatments for COVID. Um, you know, that's one thing. And so we've sent those 350 letters to companies basically saying, listen, we, we spotted what we think are some questionable practices on your site. We want you to get a hold of us within the next three days, and we certainly hope that you will take a closer look at what you're saying. Um, I call these, um, uh, just slightly facetiously, letters from the FTC, the Friendly Trade Commission, <laughs> because it, uh, they are, we send those letters out with the presumption that some of the companies that are uh, engaged in these practices may be relatively new to the marketplace. They may have rushed in. They may not have talked to counsel before entering the marketplace. And um, generally speaking, we've had good success in companies then taking down those questionable claims. Now, when, we, when companies have refused, uh, we have a number of uh, cases against purported cures and, and treatments um, that are in litigation right now. And so that's one large area what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing a number of issues dealing with um, shipment of uh, personal protective equipment. Um, you know, the FTC enforces um, the mail, internet, and telephone order rule. Um, that, to me, is really the, the key regulation that has made online commerce possible. Because for the most part, when we click an order now button, most of us have great success in maybe even overnight, but at least in a, in a few days, getting the, the items we ordered. Now, we absolutely appreciate for businesses that there have been um, disruptions in the supply chain. And we get that, and the mail order rule understands that. So if a company, um, you know, uh, in good faith, makes the claim that they have items in stock or have items available, these might be masks, disinfectants, the kind of things that everybody's looking for right now. Um, there's an easy way uh, under the mail order rule to just notify customers and saying, listen, we're having a, uh, a supply hiccup. Do you want to wait or do you want us to cancel the order? 
That's simple. What we're seeing, however, is a number of companies going online, setting up websites that claim to have ready access to those N95 masks people are looking for or other kind of personal protective equipment. Um, these and, and yet um, are not shipping or are shipping weeks or months after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, our allegation in pending cases is that this has certainly harmed consumers, but it's also harmed a lot of small businesses, uh, doctor's offices or nursing homes or daycare centers that need those kinds of things to be able to, uh, you know, to, uh, to do their work. The other very interesting case we currently have pending is a case against um, a number of, a group of people that basically spoofed the website of well-known disinfecting products. So consumers thought from the spoofed URL and the look of the page that they were actually on a website of Clorox and of Lysol. So consumers thought, oh my gosh, I finally have access to the, to the um, uh, you know, cleaning supplies I haven't mm-hmm. been able to get. Yes. Um, they, they placed orders and the companies that set up the websites uh, took the money and ran. And this, of course, harms certainly the consumers who lost money. But in this case, we also think who else was harmed was Clorox and Lysol. Um, So, you know, as a general rule, and here's the news that IP practitioners might not want to hear, you know, as a general rule, the FTC's job is not to enforce the IP rights of companies, many of of which have more lawyers than the Federal Trade Commission has, um, but our job is to protect consumers. Uh, So in that case, you know, we certainly thought it was consumers were being injured, but also uh, the companies whose good names had been spoofed and had been stolen. Um, yes. the, the other big bucket of uh, scams that we're seeing are ones especially aimed at small businesses, I guess, and some consumers, who are really struggling to keep their head above water financially. Um, I think a lot of folks are aware of the SBA's various loan programs mm-hmm. um, and what a lot of, uh, you know, what some um, uh, you know, bad actors have done is set up websites using URLs that appear to be from the SBA, are collecting companies, quote unquote, applications, um, and actually have no affiliation with the SBA or those loan programs at all. And so those small businesses find themselves out of luck. So I think those are kind of the three buckets of the kinds of deceptive practices that we have seen and that we're trying to do something about. With respect to those spoofed websites, was there litigation filed, I think you said? Yes, the uh, case is pending. And this was an interesting case because we named um, I, I, we, we named unnamed defendants. Uh, you know, we went in because one of the interesting parts of the case will be trying to figure out the source of these websites. They tended to go up for a short period of time, collect money, shut down, and then open up elsewhere under a slightly different name. And so I know that scammers who engage in that kind of conduct think they're fooling us. Not so. Uh, The FTC has uh, some very sophisticated online investigative abilities. Uh, We also have uh, some real 
um, you know, kind of tech, I'll call them sort of CSI tech experts, um, you know, in our, in our secret Internet lab bunker, uh, that they are able to do the kind of investigations we need to track down folks who are doing their level best to avoid detection. So that was an interesting case in that it was brought against the unnamed, um, uh, you know, entities that were using these spoofed websites. Well, it's good to hear that the FTC is cracking down on those types of websites. I know that many consumers and brands are hurt by those types of uh, websites, so good to hear that. What if one is a victim of an online scam? What can people do? Is there a way to report things to the FTC? I think there's a website. There is, Ken. Um, Reportfraud.ftc.gov is the place to go. Okay. And um, and let me make it clear. uh, A consumer or a business does not actually have to be victimized by the fraud to report it. Um, So uh, if a a good citizen spots something online that looks very questionable, we welcome um, them to file a report online to us. Uh, We get, um, you know, we operate something called the Consumer Sentinel Network. It is a, uh, you know, with, with multiple law enforcement agencies across the United States, Everybody from local police departments investigating identity theft to obviously the Federal Trade Commission. Um, we put all of those reports from consumers in one central confidential database reserved only for law enforcement, and we use those uh, reports to help make our case. And so, um, you know, I'll, we and we publish, um, you know, without the names obviously, but we published. Um, um, daily, for example, the number of COVID reports we have received. I think the latest number is about 350,000 that we have received from consumers um, in the past uh, 11 months or so. Um, and so, uh, you know, that is a really useful source of information uh, because a consumer may think they're the only one that has been victimized in this way. But by letting us know about it, by being deputized, to be our eyes and ears in the marketplace, they can let us know information about what they spotted that can help us put together cases. And if not us, can help the state attorneys general or the local police department make more effective, uh, have the evidence that we need to go to court uh, to make a more persuasive case. So reportfraud.ftc.gov is an easy way for uh, consumers to let us know what they're seeing. We also are very open to hearing uh, from businesses. Um, you know, I, the, the site is called Report Fraud, but I want to be real clear. We accept um, reports about things that might not legally be classified as fraud. We, you know, any kind of questionable practice. And so if a business sees a questionable practice engaged in by their competitor, and who hasn't, um, you know, they are welcome to contact us um, you know, to to let us uh, let us know what they've seen, and so um, there are um, you know one of the things they can do is simply uh, contact me personally at lfair at ftc.gov, and I can kind of send them to the right person to talk to. But um, a number of our cases, although I can't say which, um, have been brought after an independent FTC investigation, um, but based on a tip that we received from a competitor because who knows more about what's going on in the marketplace uh, than, uh, than the competitors? And how often 
have, um, you know, have lawyers in this area had to deal with clients who've said, you've told me I can't do this, yet look at what our competitor is doing. You know, maybe I need one of those nice lawyers who will let me violate the law. <laughs> uh, and so uh, we want to be supportive of attorneys who are counseling their clients wisely uh, to let them know that if there are competitors out there um, not playing by the same rules and cutting corners, uh, we're we're all ears and we'd like to hear about it. We'll put a link to reportfraud.ftc.gov in the show notes so that uh, listeners can uh, directly click on that if they need to. Thank you. Let, let's shift the focus to privacy. How does the FTC regulate privacy issues with respect to the Internet? Um, regulate, uh, let me just um, underscore or put a little asterisk, asterisk yeah. by that word. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, um, the Federal Trade Commission is actually a law enforcement agency, okay. not a regulatory agency. Now, okay. why am I making that um, that that very law school-like uh, sort of uh, um, distinction? We do. N the FTC does not have authority under the Administrative Procedures Act to promulgate regulations. That's okay. why. And so now that doesn't mean we don't have regulations uh, that we enforce, but the, the mo more common way is that Congress will direct us to promulgate a rule, as, for example, it did in the year, I guess it was 1999, when it said to the FTC, we don't want businesses to be collecting information from children online without parental permission, uh, so do something about it, FTC. Um, I, I call this Jean-Luc Picard rules, make it so. And so, um, you know, Congress did that, and that's how the Children's Online Privacy Protection Rule uh, came about. So, yes. um, you know, certainly we have several rules under the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, the Safeguards Rule and the um, uh, Privacy Rule. We have the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. But most of our privacy cases can have come out of the standard tenet of FTC law, which is that companies must honor the express and implied representations that they make to consumers. Now, whether that is, um, this will prevent you from getting COVID, this will increase your income, or we promise not to share information with third parties without your express consent, we apply the exact same law across the board to those. It's a statute written in 20, I'm sorry, in 1915. Um, it's, it's had one um, uh, revision, one amendment since then in the 30s, but it says unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce are hereby declared unlawful, Section 5 of the FTC Act. Mm -hmm. So most of our privacy cases are brought under that rubric that companies have engaged uh, in in practices have used consumers' personal information in a way that the FTC alleges is either deceptive or unfair. And we've brought a number of big cases over the years. I'm thinking of the five billion with the B dollar Facebook settlement, for example, um, that was brought under that rubric of unfair, deceptive acts or practices are hereby declared unlawful. So. We, we look at what companies say expressly and by implication on their websites and in their privacy policies with regard to how consumer information is going to be used. And then if those practices are either misleading or unfair, we will use our standard 
uh, jurisdictional authority to challenge those practices, just as we would a, a false advertisement. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what we do recently has certainly dealt with consumer privacy. Focusing on the online experience and enforcement, uh, I understand there's something called the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act. What is that act, and can you give me any recent examples on how the act was enforced? Uh, RASCA, as it's called, deals with those pesky negative options that consumers who think that they may be uh, responding to a free offer online, let's say, um, and yet are actually being signed up without their express consent for a monthly shipment uh, and billing of a product. Oh, yes, um, I hear that happens a lot. Happens a lot. It is particularly annoying. Now, certainly, some of these companies are, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, are very questionable and are selling stuff that, uh, uh, you know, we also have problems with the underlying um, nature of what they, uh, you know, what they uh, are peddling. But mm-hmm. a lot of it is too. You know, we've brought a number of cases too against companies that are in what some people call, you know, the, the front door economy. Um, I don't think there is anything that we can't get delivered these days, and certainly in a time of COVID, that's been a lifesaver for many of us. Oh, for sure. Um, Yeah, but one example um, in a case uh, involving, uh, again, an established company is a a company called Adormi, and they offer, um, you know, both kind of casual wear, exercise clothing, lingerie for women, uh, but the FTC's allegation was that, um, you know, and, and they sell, uh, you know, every month, um, uh, you know, consumers are billed uh, for the product. And the FTC challenged under Rosca the operation of, of, their, um, of their mailing. Um, on, you know, so that's an example, again, not of a company peddling a bogus diet pill that way, but a company that we allege they needed to tweak their business model to make sure um, that they were honoring all of the uh, points of Rosca. One of the important aspects of Rosca, and this was brought up in a recent case involving some online educational um, um, materials for kids, is to make it easy to cancel. Um, that, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of companies say that all the time. Sign up, it's easy to cancel anytime you want. And yet, uh, a number of companies make it virtually impossible to figure out how to cancel. Mm -hmm. Um, A number of them will accept cancellations only by phone, but don't publicize that phone number. Or accept them only by email, but not through a general email box. You have to email a very specific email box that, again, is not publicized. Um, So it is not illegal to engage in these kinds of negative options, but Rosca requires very, very clear disclosures up front to consumers, and it requires consumers to, um, uh, it requires companies to honor quickly and easily the request of consumers to complain. One of the first things we'll do, of course, is to, you know, uh, undercover sign up for this service and then try to cancel. And, uh, you know, once we're on hold for 45 minutes, maybe that's kind of a sign that a company could have a Rosca problem. Sure. With the Internet being global, does the FTC ever enforce uh, U.S. laws against individuals or entities located outside the U.S.? Do Internet shopping and scams fit into that as well? Well, you know, I guess we do that in two different ways. 
Uh, you know, we do have an Office of International Affairs at the FTC that works cooperatively with our brothers and sisters at other agencies across uh, uh, around the world. Okay. And so uh, we work very regularly because, you know, let's face it, once a company may shut down in the United States, um, we don't want to see them using those same tactics against Canadian consumers or consumers in other parts of the world, uh, and vice versa. You know, so uh, we think having those very close ties um, is one way to try to crack down on illegality. There's been a lot said and a lot the FTC is doing uh, with regard to robocalls, uh, which are illegal, yet are often coming from sources outside the United States. When companies have assets in the United States and are targeting United States consumers, those are, you know, those are easier cases to bring. For companies that don't have a United States presence, we're more likely to try to work with our counterparts in that, uh, in that part of the world to try to do something about it. But I can say, you know, there's a very good statute, the USA Safe Web Act, uh, I'm sorry, the U.S. Safe Web Act that um, that encourages this kind of cooperation, but it is one of the difficulties uh, in internet commerce. Uh, we see this again, robocalls, as I mentioned, and social media too. That a number of the uh, issues involving illegal social media practices, um, you know, we've had concerns are coming from places outside the United States. You mentioned social media. Uh, does the FTC regularly review, you know? social media on their own for violations or do they rely upon reports from others how does that work um, we do both and I think the you know the important thing to that companies should remember um, you know a lot of companies are very careful about making sure that they contact people like you can or other uh, attorneys to review their marketing materials before they go out um, that's kind of the smart prudent thing to do, yes. obviously to make sure trademark stuff is taken care of, but that's why I love talking to IP attorneys, because they are very often the de facto consumer protection attorneys. Um, but one of the things that we remind them is that their social media presence is also subject to the false advertising provisions of the FTC Act. So what they say on Facebook, what they tweet, uh, what the influencers uh, that they uh, that they hire to to um, as part of their marketing efforts. What those influencers say is their responsibility. Um, the the most important provisions are under the FTC's guides for the uh, use of endorsements and testimonials, which long predates social media. But it says two important things: that an influencer or a blogger or a tweeter or an, an Instagrammer can't say something about a product that the company doesn't have, um, you know, the advertiser doesn't have proof to support. Mm -hmm. So you can't, you can't slide that in the side door by having it come from someone else. Some sort of substan substantiation, right? That's the key factor, yes. yes. And that applies, again, TV, Internet, direct mail, social media. Companies must have, before a claim goes public, before it goes public, must have in hand competent and reliable evidence to support that. Yes. That's kind of the foundation of what we do. That was the reason for, for example, all of those COVID uh, uh, warning letters. What's your substantiation? The other angle that comes up in the influencer context is, is it clear from the nature of the tweet, the IG, the blog, etc., 
that the influencer is working on behalf of the company. Uh, and so um, we call those material connections, and we think consumers have a right to know that. Um, if you go to a website and it says, Leslie Fair is the best lawyer in Washington, D.C., um, you know, that might be influential until you find out that um, it's my mother's website, right? Mm -hmm. So we think that kind of connection is important for consumers to have to allow them to factor in, you know, to what extent is that going to factor in uh, to the credibility they give um, what the influencer may have to say. Mm -hmm. And so we've done a lot uh, in recent years in social media. Um, but the important thing for companies to know is that when we're looking at their advertising claims, that includes what they're saying on social media. We're coming near the end of our uh, time today on IP Fridays. Leslie, could you give our listeners an idea of the, the online resources that the FTC has to find out more information um, about issues that we've talked about today? We have a lot of online resources, uh, Ken. These are plain language, to-the-point brochures and guidance documents that can walk businesses and attorneys through what the FTC law is. Uh, certainly, we have our FTC.gov website that offers kind of the news of the day, but we have a special portal for business people and attorneys. That's business.ftc.gov, and there consumer, uh, businesses will find um, more than 200 plain language guides, how to deal with disclosures in a digital environment, what if they want to sell dietary supplements, how do influencers need to disclose their connections. All of those questions are answered at uh, business.ftc.gov. We also uh, uh, mentioned, and I will, in the interest of full disclosure, reiterate what you said, that I am the FTC's primary business blogger. Um, but the business blog goes out usually between two or three times a week uh, to give a very informal take, uh, the takeaway tips for businesses about FTC's uh, actions, and initiatives and cases. Uh, I will be, uh, you know, I am proud to say most people who look at it ask themselves, are you sure this is a government website? Um, and that makes my day uh, mm -hmm. when they do that. I think the only time I may have crossed the line is when I explained the provisions of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the FCRA, to the tune of the Village People's YMCA. Maybe that crossed the line, uh, <laughs> but I can guarantee you this is a uh, blog like no other, and you can uh, subscribe at ftc.gov slash subscribe to business alerts. So between business.ftc.gov and uh, the business blog, it's an easy way for companies to uh, keep up to date. A wealth of information indeed, Leslie. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, with us here on the IP Fridays podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. 
you can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes, and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast, or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.